Good morning. My name is Russell Atkins. I'm filling in again for Tim, uh, who will be back next week. I want to welcome those who are visiting our class this morning. Uh, special welcome to you. Welcome back to our consistent members and those I haven't seen in a while. Welcome those who are listening online. I want to begin uh, with prayer this morning. Eternal Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for uh, another day of life and health and for this Sabbath and what it represents. I want to thank you for the, the gift of your word. Um, as we continue studying the book of Numbers, I want you to continue to shed uh, the light and reason on, uh, on your character and how it was revealed to the children of Israel and what we can learn from it. Please be with those of our group who are not with us and bring them safely back to us in the weeks ahead. In the name of Jesus, amen. We are studying lesson number two, People on the Move, the book of Numbers. And the title of this lesson is Preparing a People. Someone read Sabbath's memory text uh, for me. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prosper. What comes to mind, first of all, when you read or hear this text? Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. The reference is 3 John 2. Last quarter's lesson. Last quarter's lesson, yeah, which we studied the epistles of John, okay. John has written this, and he's saying this to a group, you know, within the church or the, the entire church itself. Are there any references in Scripture where God has said words very similar to this, where he wishes his best for his children? When we're studying this lesson, uh, so far, the, these two lessons have, it, it contains some language that um, I, I'm not all that comfortable with. Um, and I, I think that we need to continue our study of this lesson under the umbrella that God does wish his best for us. And God does wish us to be in good health, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And God has been trying and intervening ever since Adam and Eve fell to make that happen. Uh, and humanity, are, we are the ones that, that keep running away from this. We're the ones that keep rejecting this. So as we go on and, and look at some of the things that, some of the laws and some of the uh, rituals and, and processes that were instituted here with the children of Israel, keep this in mind, that God wanted their best interests. He had their best interests at heart. Yes, sir. Yeah, Russ, when you talk about the, when God said that, I would, I would Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, where it says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, and to give you hope in the future. Excellent. Thank you. Scripture is full of these texts. There are too, there are too many to, to list. Old and New Testament, where God, God is speaking to his children. And he's telling them that he, he wants their best interests. He wants to heal them as individuals, as nations. And he's continually trying to, seeking our best interests, not his own. Let's move to Sunday's lesson. These are some regulations and processes that got instituted in order to um, control disease and disease process. Uh, someone read Numbers 5, verses 1 through 4, please. Then the Lord said to Moses, The children of Israel are to send away from the camp anyone who has a contagious skin disease or a bodily discharge, and also anyone who is ritually unclean from contact with the corpse. 
This applies to both men and women, and they must live outside the camp until they are clean, so as not to spread disease in the camp, but also because my presence is there. Okay. Let's think, first of all, about the practical um, physical health issues of this. A contagious skin disease, that, that's, kind of a broad, that's kind of a broad category. Um, and I think the key, key term here is contagious. Okay? Acne is not contagious. Is it? Not to my knowledge. Um, is leprosy contagious? Is it? What is leprosy? Someone correct me if I'm wrong. It's a disease of the peripheral nervous system, and I don't know if it's bacteriological or viral, but what it does is it causes damage to the sensory nerves and the, and the digits in the periphery. Peripheral, meaning out away from the trunk. So a person cannot feel pain, cannot feel touch, light touch, pain sensations, burn. They, they can't feel any of that. And what happens is... During their normal day, they stub their toe. They don't feel pain. And uh, they break the skin. They may not know it because they don't have our, they don't have their usual pain response telling them that, hey, you stubbed your toe. So they break the skin. They're walking around in sandals. Toe gets infected, gangrenous. And they lose their digits. You know, and the process continues. In the Old Testament, my understanding is a broad category of contagious skin diseases, which includes also leprosy. Let's consider the spiritual implications of this now. Um, Leprosy is a metaphor for sin. The children of Israel, they have a contagious skin disease uh, or some discharge or contact with uh, a corpse are to be put away from the camp until a period of cleansing. With regard to the skin disease, we obviously they're going to keep them out until they're healed. Uh, and coming up here in Numbers, we have evidence, uh, you know, when Miriam uh, and Aaron rebel against Moses, that she is sent out of the camp until she's healed. Why does God have them put out of the camp for spiritual reasons? And is there a spiritual reason why God would have them put out of the camp? Same Contaminates whom? Those that are And contaminates, first of all, the sinner, right? Okay. It's possible that sin could spread and contaminate those that uh, the sinner is surrounded by. Does sin contaminate the Lord's presence? previous study numbers, God had declared the camp holy. And it's holy because his presence was there. The sin contaminated God's presence. I think it represents more of a symbol of separation from sin causes. Okay. So, consider that the, the sinner was removed from God's presence, not God's presence was removed from the sinner. It's important. It's an important distinction. The sin, the leprosy, metaphor for sin, removed the infected person 
from God's presence. Okay, God's presence didn't change. God's presence didn't leave. Okay, it, it's it's in, it, in my mind is a very important distinction. Sin sin is what separates us from God. God is not angry with us or rejecting us because we're sinners. Okay, if that were true, Jesus Himself could not have come down and associated with sinners. In fact, that was one of the reasons the Pharisees rejected him as the Messiah, because they, they said, well, a Messiah wouldn't associate with sinners. Yes, sir. Just like when we look at um, diabetes type 2, uh-huh. these people have insulin, but they have insulin resistance. Actually, the insulin is there. The receptor is the one having problem. It's also true. God's presence is always here. What we sang, we have a receptor problem. Okay, excellent analogy. Did everyone hear that? He, he's comparing diabetes type 2, which is a problem with the receptors on the cells. The receptors cannot process the insulin that the, that the body is producing. Insulin is flowing through the bloodstream. The cells cannot process it. They don't recognize it. They can't. They can't process it. Uh, and he's drawing the comparison with God's presence. God's presence is here. It's often a problem with our receptors, our our perception and reception of that presence. Excellent comment. Thank you. Read the last phrase in verse number three and numbers five again. I'll read the whole verse. Numbers five three. This applies to both men and women. They must live outside the camp until they are clean, so as not to spread the disease in the camp, and also because my presence is there. Okay. This is exactly what we're talking about. God is trying to shape and develop this people into a nation that is going to reveal his character to the, the heathen and pagan nations surrounding them. So he's got to... He's got to reveal his character to them first. Correct? Yes, sir. Maybe I'm being, being a little dense this morning, but I'm still thinking of those first uh, four verses as being literal and having to do with physical ailments because you know, starting in verse 5, it makes a very marked turn towards talking about people that are doing wrongs against one another, sins which is simply to make up for it and move on. There's no instruction there that they need to be banished or anything else when they're actually specifically, literally talking about wrongdoing. They they have a very specific thing to do. They, they need to make restitution, and then they move on. Okay, I think that's a valid point. I have no argument at all that there was a dual reason for these people being banished from the camp. Simply from a, a quarantine and trying to keep everyone else healthy. No question. If that was God's only reason, makes sense to me. But the, the passage that she just read indicates that there, there, there was a, a spiritual reason for this. To remove them from the camp because my presence is here. Because this camp is to be holy. I'm not making that leap. Okay. Because... Might I, might I just as equally say, um, if I was God speaking, um, it's important for us to have the objective of, of uh, working towards a, a healthy church family here. This is important because 
I am the head of this family, and your physical health is important to me. Therefore, this is how we are going to conduct ourselves as this, as this larger family. I am here. I'm sharing this with you. Maybe it has nothing to do with sin. Yes, sir. I think that our God's dealing with us, there's, like we mentioned, uh, dual applications or dual meanings. Uh, there's a practical, literal application, and then there's a spiritual side of that. And you see that throughout the whole Bible. Uh, and I think this is just another example of him trying to impress upon the children of Israel. You know, disease is a bad thing. Look what it can do. It spreads and destroys everybody. Sin is the same thing. You know, and the, the whole sanctuary service was, uh, you know, a symbolic of, of that. Uh, you know, it's pointing to him coming in what happens. And he had all kinds of symbolism. And I think this is just a, a numbers is a good book for that because there's a lot of real practical organizational things and there's some spiritual essence. I agree. In fact, the, the, the entire the entire Exodus experience is a it's, it's just a great oh yeah. Grace, the entire thing was is symbolic. It's literal. Nope. He freed his people at that time but it also frees us from sin. Right. And I do not claim to be an expert on the symbols of sanctuary and, and all the, the Old Testament laws and, and things like that. I mean, I'm sure, you know, we can we can dissect and, and find numerous meanings, and when we get to heaven, we'll, we'll see that we only scratch the surface of it. Transitioning ahead to um, Monday's lesson, uh, he brought up the, the point that God is... Uh, moves on to instruct the children of Israel about uh, what to do if they uh, have wronged someone in the camp. Let's look at Numbers 5, verses 6 through 8. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, When a man or a woman wrongs another in any way, and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it all to the person he has wronged. But if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest, along with the ram with which atonement is made for him. Any thoughts on this? Is this something that we practice today? Or is this something we should practice today? How do you put a, uh, a monetary figure on uh, a lie? Or can you? Have you, ever been, have you ever been lied to? Of course we have. And have you ever been hurt by a lie? Uh, can you put a value on that? Yes, Linda. Uh, I want to just speak to the doing people the wrong thing because... You know, I find it interesting in the Bible when it says when you're in church essentially praying and you remember that somebody has something against you, go and make it right and then come back and finish praying, so to speak. It's not you against them, but them against you. Either way, when you see that person or think of them, if the first thing that comes to your mind is, is an offense, that bars a relationship a lot of times. Even if you're nice to their face, in your mind, you're thinking, well, you know, mm-hmm. they've done this, and they will do that, and all of this. And it really uh, limits the kind of relationship God wants us to have with each other and with Him. So it's, it's vital to rectify, so that that can kind of get out of the way. 
excellent point. How far along were the children of Israel in their understanding of what exactly sin was? They were just beginners. Right. In this time, they were just delivered from Egyptian slavery. Or- right. I don't know the exact history and timeline, but they, they were not too far removed from the tablets of stone being handed down, you know, written in the by the finger of God. That those commandments that actually identify what sin and wrongdoing is. And then the, the Mosaic Law, which expounded on that, uh, was given after, after Sinai. And this kind of gave a broader revelation of, of what uh, right and wrong, what sin is. The, the, these children of Israel are literally children. They're, they're just beginning an understanding of what right and wrong is. And I think this is just one more in a long series of lessons uh, to, to mold and shape their thoughts and characters about what it, what it means to, to wrong someone and to be wronged by someone. Look in the second paragraph. Wrong our neighbor is to sin against God himself. In one sense, this shouldn't be that hard to all to understand. We all belong to God. We are all his property, both by creation and by redemption. Do you consider yourself God's possession? I heard a yes and I heard a no. It's not his possession, but his children. We know how we cherish our children. Ah. It's much more meaningful to be thought of as, a, as a, his son or daughter, isn't it, than his possession. Now, it's Scripture says very clearly that you know the everything the earth is his, everything in it. I mean he, he created it is therefore his. So humanity is his. Certainly. But well, I consider my children mine. Yes, exactly. And scripture is also very clear that that um, you know we are sons and daughters of God. I didn't like the term property. I, I, I didn't I, I didn't care for it either. It kinda it made me chafe a little bit. Um Called slaves, and slaves were kind of considered property, right? Or cattle, or sh- you know. I don't think parents of their children as as a property. Of course not. I, well, I would hope not. So but to your children, right. we, don't, we don't own them. There are some parents that are incredibly controlling and do consider them their property, and. If that child makes a mistake, if the parent completely brings it back to himself, and how does it look to me? I think the difference is that a parent loves you, and your, your Lord loves you, but still identifies you as an individual, knows you'll make mistakes, and, I didn't, and acknowledges that they have free will. Does God get angry or, or offended when we misrepresent him or when we hurt him? Does he? Why? I think he gets hurt. I think he's hurt when we misrepresent him. Okay. You become an obstacle between other people and God that way. Rather than an extreme leading to God or from God, you then become a dam between that person and God. And in that way, that's something that that is offensive to God because he loves all his children and does not want you to put stumbling blocks in front of your way by the way you behave and deal with them. Is he not also concerned, though, with what damage is occurring in your own character? 
they, uh, parents, if you've had children who have not followed your uh, advice or your example, um, what's the greater offense? Are you, are you mad because they didn't uh, do what you told them to, or are you upset at the damage that, that they caused themselves by not doing what you told them to? Okay, you hurt for your children. That's the greater issue here. Yes? I was just going to say that, too, that, that it's more of a, of a heartache or a sadness over the damage you see taking place in your child and the damage you see that your child is causing to other people by influence. Yes, sir. My these lesson, to me, it looks like it's just another example, like a, of God's dual meaning of how we literally interact with other people. If something's wrong, also spiritually, I think it was mentioned or hinted, hinted at that uh, how we react to God. If we do something wrong, we need to reconcile ourselves to God, just like we have to do with other people. I think this is another way of Him teaching them. Not only how to interact with each other, but how to interact with him. Because, like you said, you know, they're just new at this. They just come out of Egypt. They just got the law. They don't know anything about, uh, you know, uh, it's been 200 years since they knew God or they've been slaves. And he's just trying to reestablish in them this relationship. And I think this is another example of the rules at a literal practical application. But the spiritual side is, you know, reconcile yourself to me if something's wrong. Right, okay. If two people have been in a relationship and something has intervened to divide that relationship, there are two things that have to happen in order for that rec- the relationship to be brought back together in, a, in its uh, pre-damaged state. What, what two things have to happen? Forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation. A lot, oftentimes we... We use the two terms uh, in, uh, as synonymous, but they are not. They're very different. If I've wronged you, okay, in order for the relationship to be repaired, you have to forgive me that wrong, and we both have to want to reconcile the relationship. And free will and forgiveness works on your heart and also on mine. If you forgive me, what does uh, Paul say that does that does to me? If so if I wrong someone and I and they extend me forgiveness, what does that do to me? I think it frees you from the trap of sin. It frees you and allows you to regain your relationship and the freedom of that relationship. It, it will also heap burning coals on my head, right? Yes. Not even just forgiveness, though, because forgiveness, I mean, you can forgive somebody who's wronged you, but unless there's healing that takes place, or if you're the person who's done the wrong, you can be forgiven, but unless there's healing that takes place in me, so that I'm a different person coming into this relationship, then there can't be the kind of reconciliation and trust and love that needs to be there. Correct. Yeah, forgiveness is only part of the equation. Uh, that, that's that's the point I, I want to make. Forgiveness is only half of it, or maybe a third of it. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and then there's a rebuilding of trust. I think the sinner must acknowledge that they've done wrong, and that's why they have to do restitution. Okay, I think yeah, I think that's that's one of the reasons why 
uh, you know, adding 20% to, you know, a restitution is part of that acknowledgement. Consider a couple who, um, you know, one, one party is unfaithful. And the unfaithful party is consumed with guilt, recognizes that they have, they have uh, wronged the other one, comes to the, uh, the offended party, seeks forgiveness. Forgiveness is extended, and they both want the, the, the uh, marriage to be reconciled. Um, what, what has to happen next? I mean, what, what's the next process? Does that restore trust is my question. I guess it's a better question. No. Trust is not restored. Healing and, and trust must be rebuilt. In the outward appearance, if we change the behavior, we show that we would hopefully show an inner part that has been changed also. But that's not always accurate either. Sadly, um, I have known folks who are pretty good actors and actresses. So therefore, it requires a good amount of time in order for demonstration to be shown. And that's why our Bibles are given to us and God hasn't completed this thing in such a, you know, in a short period of time because it requires a time period for us to see him moving about in many and various ways in a trustworthy manner. Okay, any other thoughts? Well, on the last paragraph on Monday's lesson. Okay, read it please. It says that the principle of righting wrongs with other people still applies today. How do we right the wrong we've done to God, against whom we've sinned as well? The fact is we can't, and it's why it's way too late for us to make ourselves right with God. And that's, of course, why Jesus came, to set us right with God. Not through anything we can do, but only through what Jesus has done for us. I'm Did you have issues with that paragraph? Thank you for bringing that up. Um, the language that's used in here is, on the surface, a little bit disconcerting to me. How do we right the wrong we've done to God? The fact is, we can't. Uh, it's way too late for us to make ourselves right with God. Well, in a literal sense, we can't make ourselves right with God, period. And every no human since Adam has been able to make themselves right with God. Once Adam and Eve fell, they, they passed along to their descendants a genetic predisposition to self. And even though we have examples of men who walked very closely with God namely Enoch and Elijah. Scripture says that all have sinned and come short of the grace of God. So humanity in and of itself, we can't make ourselves right with God. And the paragraph is correct, that that is why Jesus came. He came to reconcile all things in heaven and earth with God. And it's only through the indwelling of the the transforming and healing power of the Holy Spirit that we can be reconciled with God. But right in terms of what? The paragraph there sounds very legalistic, forensic. It absolutely does. Absolutely. And so what we do needs a legal type of payment mm-hmm. rather than uh, reconciliation, light, lightness of heart, and turning our uneven, broken heart, aligning it straight and right. Right. Becoming holy, even as our Father is holy. Right. We're going to see in Susie's lesson. This is going to be hopefully made a little clearer. Yes. I have a different thought on that. Oh, please share it. Uh, making us right with God. Uh, David, of course, caused Uriah's death, and he could not bring Uriah back to life, but he did repent. 
Now, if I've stolen something, I can return that. If I've lied, I can confess that. So to us to be right with God, we have to repent. That is a big issue. And make restitution as far as we can. Now, there's some things we'll never be able to, but on the whole, to me, repenting and acknowledge where I'm wrong, where I'm wrong, I'm in the wrong. And if I never repent, I will never be right with God. And why is that? Because I'm doing what's wrong and sin is the transgression of the law and I have sinned against God and my fellow man. If you don't repent, are you still forgiven by God? He made provision for my forgiveness, but I've never accepted it. So you are forgiven by God. You just don't. You just don't acknowledge. I don't acknowledge in the past. You don't accept that forgiveness. Accept His forgiveness. I am not forgiven. It's just like if you offer me a book and I don't take it. But the book still exists. Still exists. Yes, sir. My thought is that I think a lot of where the hang-up comes with the term repentance is the definition of the word. Um, repentance, in my understanding, involves not only acknowledging that something has been done wrong, but it involves an actual change. In other words, not even it does. It goes beyond saying I sinned, and it goes to turning away from the sin. And so, unless that turning away from the sin has taken place, whether or not the acknowledgement has taken place, you know, then we almost, uh, you know, put the nail in our own coffin. It's not true repentance, in other words. It's not true repentance, exactly. Okay. Yes, sir. We're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty, and Paul says here, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in earth or things in heaven. What does that mean? Glass? What does it mean that God is reconciling all things on earth and in heaven to himself? Well, this whole thing just the universe, not just us. But it was by the maligning the character of God, it was maligned in front of the whole universe and needed to be uh, clarified straightened out. And until that happened, things in heaven or on earth were discordant. They weren't together. They weren't unified. At what point in history did the angels still have questions about whether or not Lucifer's argument was valid? Up until the crucifixion of Christ. Up until the crucifixion of Christ. Up until roughly 2,000 years ago, even the angels that stayed in heaven still had questions. And they were intently watching not only the children of Israel, but all the patriarchs and all the prophets. They intently watched creation. They they were watching this battle being played back and forth about the disagreement with the character and the nature of God and the character and nature of Lucifer. And when Lucifer... Con- convinced evil men to murder our Savior on the cross, that's when the veil was open, the veil was torn, both literally and symbolically. And the angels in heaven finally said, ah, okay, this is the nature of care. This is the nature of Satan. That's why it says in Revelation, something like, rejoice you heavens, but woe to the earth, 
because the devil has come down to you. The heavens rejoiced because they no longer had to hear Satan's arguments. Their minds had been made up. I've never heard that concept about the angels kind of still wondering for a long, long time. And that just fascinates me because I keep thinking, you know how we are all better at hindsight mm-hmm. or watching somebody else's kids or another family like, oh, how can you not see that? Can you imagine what the angels went through and said, oh, another Israelite, you have got to be kidding me. Can you not see that? It's as clear as we can, it's right in front of you. How frustrating, how, how funny, how, I mean, just forever seeing these people just literally wandering around and not getting anything right, it seems like. I agree. It must have been sad, amusing, frustrating, uh, astonishing. It must have been all of those things to the courts of heaven. And still must be, you know, really, because their minds are now made up. Yeah. The 2,000 years since, uh, since Christ died, you know, they're... I'm sure they're chafing at the bit. You know, come on, guys, get with the program. We want to come take you home. Why is Satan now only confined to the earth? No one else will listen. No one else will give him the time of day. No one will listen to his arguments. Humanity is the only species in the universe now that is remotely aligned with his government. And God is just trying to bring a people out and trying to, continuing to try to reveal himself. Uh, in, in his character and his government to us. Yes, sir. Uh, are there other texts in the Bible or does Ellen White actually speak about how people made that decision at Calvary? Angels, other other universes. I almost have a hard time believing that these perfect beings, it took them over 4,000 years of Earth's history to see that Satan was wrong. That when Satan had God's men, God's prophets killed, that they couldn't see Satan for who he was. It took them killing God's son for them to release It wasn't until Christ came to earth and revealed very clearly the nature and the character of God. You know, Hebrews says that when he had developed a perfect character through suffering, he became salvation for all. It wasn't until they saw that Satan would have killed God himself and actually did kill God himself that his character was fully revealed. Satan was, so, I mean, if you read The Great Controversy, I think, is a perfect book, you know, pulling back the veil to this. And, um, you know, the story of Job, Satan accosts the, the sons of, of God, the princes of other worlds, you know, coming back and forth to heaven. And he's, you know, he, he, he shows up and claims himself as the prince of the earth because the inhabitants of earth have followed his government. So I think quite a bit of evidence. I don't know. That, I don't know if any text specifically says angels were convinced at Calvary, uh, but beyond a reasonable doubt, it's over here. Yeah, um, God. God wasn't going to compel the the courts of angels who who stayed loyal, even though they had questions. He wasn't going to compel them to agree with him or be cast out of heaven. He said, "You have questions. I, I understand." Here's the evidence. I want to create Adam and Eve to reveal my government, to come together and give of themselves and raise their offspring uh, and continually give of themselves for the betterment of their offspring. And Satan intervened and Satan attacked that and derailed it. So now now the courts of heaven say, whoa, these, these humans that God created, they followed Satan's government. Maybe he's right. No, well, Isaiah 14 is where it really specifies what charges and what Satan's goal was and sort of what charges he was having. 
You know, I'll read it. Revelation 14, starting with verse 12. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low with the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Yes, sir. So the reconciling process at the cross has more to do with the honor of God than that I make right things with God except for confession and repentance. Say that one more time. Uh, I didn't quite follow. Okay. The reconciling process at the cross has more to do with the honor of God than my involvement in making things right with God except that I need to confess and repent of my sins. First John 1, I think it had more to do with the the character of God uh, and the government of God as opposed to his honor. Um, but I think that's a, an accurate statement. The honor of God is about God's character, about God's law, about God's government, and all things that, that pertain to God's creation. And less of an effort. Further on, this gives you kind of the reverse. This is what Satan wanted. What Satan got and what he actually demonstrated at the cross, I think, climaxed of this was, but in starting with verse 15, but you're brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Those who stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made the kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? You know, he aspired to this. But instead, all can see in the universe. I believe his rulership, his form of government, leads to the entire destruction of the earth and the wood above the universe. Right. And and today, uh, in communion, we're reminded of, of how God's government, how opposite God's government is. When Christ, when in the Last Supper, when he was given all power, what did he do? He didn't shake off the responsibility that uh, God had given him. He removed his robe and washed the feet of the disciples, even the feet of the one who he knew was going to go betray him later. What, what a contrast, you know, from I will set myself above the stars to I will kneel down and wash my uh, disciples' feet. Yes, sir. Going back to that question about the angels not understanding that mm-hmm. the concept of that. In Revelation 4 or 5, it, it describes Christ's coronation as a Jew returning from what he did on earth. And then in Revelation uh, 12, 7, it says, and, and this is part of that coronation, and there was war in heaven. We know it's not a physical war, it was a verbal war. Five hundred angels fought against the dragon and, and uh, his angels, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Up until that point, he had Satan had access to heavenly things. Because Job, the one example that he went to the courts of God and, and uh, was able to go there. But from that point on, after uh, the cross, after Christ uh, paid uh, his death, uh, they lost their place in heaven. They had no place else to go. I think that's just a hint of how that Satan still had access up to that point, and something happened at that point. And, you know, we can surmise that. That point is very clear uh, to all heavenly beings, Satan's character and nature. The passage of Revelation where it talks about those war in heaven and, and Satan, and, you know, Michael fought with the dragon and the dragon was cast out. 
I think that actually occurred before even creation, before Calvary. Well, I mean, that's huge. There's, there's some thoughts that it, at the, when he, Jesus came and took what God was going to give him, that's what Satan wanted, that Christ position. And Satan wasn't going to give up at his coronation. He still had access. He, he vividly attacked and said, no, it's mine or whatever. And there's that verbal battle going on. And, and the arguments against him weren't enough. And he lost and he was cast out. And he had no more place in heaven. Hmm. Up before that point, he did have access to heaven. And Job is the example that he was able to go back and forth and save the accuser brothers day and night uh, up until that point. But after the Calvary, he couldn't do that anymore. He had no more access to heaven. 1210. Revelation. 1210. Then the scene changed, and I seemed to be at Calvary. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Salvation has come, and the power of God is revealed, and his kingdom is established as the God of his Christ. Satan, the accuser of our brothers, who accused them before God day and night, is now cast out from the sympathy of the angels in heaven forever. And then it goes down to verse 13. It says, When Satan saw that he had been defeated by Christ and had lost the sympathy of the angels in heaven, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. Okay, so he's cast out from their sympathy. That's a great text to answer your question. I want to move on to Tuesday's lesson before we run out of time. This is a fascinating um, process that was established here to determine <laughs> marital fidelity. And for the feminists in here, uh, I had issue why there wasn't a test for male infidelity as well. But um, apparently this was only designed to determine whether a wife had been unfaithful. Uh, and we read this in Numbers 5, 11 through 31. Uh, someone... Pick up and start reading that, and if you get tired, uh, hand it off to someone else. I'll start. Verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him by sleeping with another man, and this is hidden from her husband, and her impurity is undetected, since there is no witnesses against her, and she has not been caught in the act, and if feelings of jealousy come over her husband, and he suspects his wife, and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure, then he is to take his wife to the priest. He must also take an offering of a tenth of an ephah of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour oil on it or put incense on it, because it is a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to guilt. Uh, someone take 16. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. After the priest has had home and stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair and place in her hands the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, If no other man has slept with you and you have not gone astray and become a pure while married to your husband, May this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband, and you have defiled yourself by sleeping with a man other than your husband, hear the graces who put the woman under this curse of the oath. May the Lord cause your people to curse and denounce you when he causes your thigh to waste away and your abdomen to swell. May this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells and your thigh wastes away. Then the woman is to say, Amen. So be it. Now there's some numerous footnotes that, that indicate that the abdomen swelling and thigh wasting away is 
something that makes her barren or that causes her to miscarry. Okay? Someone take up 23 and take it on home. Then the priest is to write the conditions down, and when he's finished, he is to wash the writing off to the jar. Water. The one is to get ready to drink this bitter mixture that will bring on the consequences that were written down by the priest. And the priest is to take the two quarts of barley flour he's asked for the whole and raise it up for the Lord. Then he's to take a handful of it and burn it on the altar as a recall offering to the Lord. And this, the woman is to drink the bitter water. After this, the woman is to drink the bitter water as she was asked to do. If she has been unfaithful to her husband, the water she drinks will bring on the consequences. Her uterus will drop, she will miscarry, and her abdomen will swell. She will always be at birth, and the people will turn against her. But if she's innocent, the water will not hurt her body. She will be cleared of guilt and will be able to bear children. This is the law for cases where the husband suspects his wife of having been faithful to him, or when a man feels jealous and wants to make sure that his wife still belongs to him. And in any of these cases, the priest is to have her come before the Lord and carry out the law. If the woman is guilty, she has brought the consequences on herself. Her husband is not to be held guilty of causing these consequences. Yes. Um, I was trying to figure that out too. Like, why would they talk about the woman being such a bad person when it can equally be a man that commits this? And in my Bible, it says, um, it gives a little explanation. It says, the gravity of the ritual demonstrates that marital infidelity was regarded as a serious matter in Israel. However, the burden was largely on the woman, probably due to the possible conception of an illegitimate child. Yet the very provision of this law was a means of limiting unjust accusations made against a faithful wife. Okay, so it actually serves as a protection for a woman who has been faithful and the guy is jealous for no reason. Uh, hand in the back, yes. Say, uh, when Jesus forgave the woman for adultery, the Pharisee who was part of the act, he, he was nowhere to be found. He wasn't in that stone process. And he was a Pharisee. Okay. I might also list that it's a measure of protection for women accused of adultery. Without it, a jealous husband might be inclined to take matters into his own hands, possibly beating or even killing his wife. The test described by God provides a structured system for dealing with the unfortunate situation. And it says at the end that once the sin is discovered, be it man or woman, that the punishment is the same. Okay, way in the back there. Um, David Ashrick's uh, comments on the Sabbath school lesson say that if Exodus is kind of the pre-marriage, then Numbers is the marriage. And throughout the Bible, the central theme of, of God's church being the bride is such an important issue. And I think that that's part of the symbolism here, is this woman isn't, isn't just the gender. Yes, they're talking about a gender in this. But it's also a reflection of the behavior of God's church as, as that soulmate to, to Christ also. I think that's why so many times a woman is, is chosen within the, the whole gender. Okay. Yes, sir. Now, during the Middle Ages, and maybe a little after that, they used to do a trial by ordeal. Yeah. <laughs> Looks like perhaps they would use this as a, a basis. So they would make, make you drink poison, and if you survived it, then you were innocent. Or if they would um, dunk you in water and didn't drown, 
I actually think it went the other way. If they, I'm thinking about the witch trials. If they dunked you and you drowned, then you were innocent. If you survived and you're a witch and you got burned at the stake, <laughs> you were set up to fail in those. I, I wonder, I, I look back and think, okay, that is a very set in stone, rigid, step by step by step, which is very much how we deal with children. And these children of Israel were pointed out several weeks ago. They were children. And this is why the commandments were, no, you do not. Because, you know, when your kids are reaching up for that stove, you don't say, come over here, let me tell you where you can put your hand. Right. You go, get off the stove. You know, I mean, it's, it's incredibly harsh because you have fear in you and you want them to stop immediately. But look how we are supposedly, <laughs> mm-hmm. have evolved over the years to how we deal with infidelity, that, that trial, if you will, isn't done anymore. Um, how God deals with us is much different much more is put on to us in terms of understanding and thinking and reasoning about things and forgiving. You might have somebody who has cheated, but you know what? Now you can reconcile and continue to be married. It seems back then, what if they wanted to reconcile? That was the law, sorry. Right. I think in closing here, first of all, this is a a huge process that this, this couple has to go through to um, reveal guilt or innocence. And there's a comment in the middle of Tuesday's lesson uh, regarding this procedure. Says, Everything depended on whether the woman was holy, uh, parenthetically guiltless, or unholy. If the holy met unholy, judgment was inevitable. If the holy met guiltless, harmony prevailed. I think this is a great analogy or metaphor for what will happen at the end of time. If we have accepted the healing and transforming grace and power of Jesus Christ and internalized that character and, made, and, and he, we've allowed him to develop his character within us, when we meet a holy God, harmony will prevail. If we have rejected that healing remedy and we remain unholy, judgment will prevail. We will bring judgment on ourselves. It won't be an imposed penalty from an angry God. We will bring judgment on ourselves. This, I, and I think this is a great a great example and a great quote, uh, not only for what was occurring uh, in the children of Israel's time, but what we can expect for the future. Let's close with prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the lessons and symbols and examples that have been set forth for us in Scripture. Uh, I want to ask that you continue to reveal your character, continue to work in our lives, continue to heal and transform us, so that when you come, we may be, we may see you face to face for who you are, so that we may be holy just as you are holy. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you all for your input. We will see you next week.